0: Now, there were plenty of people last autumn who did not think Joe Biden could win, not because they didn't think he was popular. It was more they worried that the people who did support him might not be able to register their vote, that voting had been made so difficult and so hard in certain parts of the country and with particular groups that whole lots of people who did like Joe Biden wouldn't be able to make sure their support counted. They were talking about voter suppression. Well, in the end, Joe Biden, of course, did win. And there was great relief that he did because it seemed as if voter suppression had not worked. And that relief redoubled in January when there were those two Senate runoff elections in Georgia, which went the Democrats way and gave control of the Senate to that party. And so people perhaps were tempted, maybe they still are, to sit back and think, "Okay, the threat of voter suppression has receded. Well, since then, all over the United States, Republican-held states are proposing bills that would make voting even harder, putting up obstacles, particularly, it said, aimed at disenfranchising African-American voters. The Democrats are trying to fight back at the federal level with a bill or a couple of bills that they are piloting through Congress, hoping to get a majority in the House and in the Senate and making it law. So this is a battle royal across America about whether voting should be harder or made easier, which is why I wanted to talk to Janae Nelson. She's the associate director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund of America's oldest civil rights organization, the NAACP. And I began our conversation by asking Janae Nelson about some of the deep history of voter suppression, how far it goes back, and some of the extraordinary lengths the gatekeepers of democracy went to, particularly in the American South, to disenfranchise people of colour.
1: So the history of voting rights in the United States has been a fraught one since its inception. Uh, As many know, the right to the franchise was initially limited to property-owning white males. Over time, it has been expanded to include many other groups, but not without extraordinary efforts that included protest and to the point of, of bloodshed at different points in our history. States had to resort to devious methods of keeping African-Americans from the ballot box. And so they constructed tests, often called literacy tests, where African-Americans were asked to, for example, there's a 1964 literacy test out of the state of Louisiana where you are asked to spell the word backwards forwards which sounds like a simple task but what are they asking for um or you're asked to print the word vote upside down but in the correct order uh, so it was through those very subjective and peculiar tasks um asked you know asking people to estimate the number of bubbles in a soap bar that allowed the persons who were the gatekeepers to the ballot to determine whether African-Americans were suited and and intellectually fit to participate in our electoral process. And as you might imagine, uh, they used that discretion to exercise wholesale discrimination and keep entire African-American communities out of the electoral process.
0: And people imagine that all of those kind of jaw-dropping abuses were eradicated with the stroke of a pen when Lyndon Johnson uh, signed the Voting Rights Act in in 1965. I mean, your group exists partly, uh, Janae Nelson, because that's not the case, that actually, even though those sort of hair-raising abuses have gone, uh, abuses and voter suppression, abuses, in other words, aimed at denying people the vote, have continued. And your organisation has recently published, I know it's only the preliminary findings in a report called Democracy Defended, uh, your own sort of inquest into some of the abuses that you saw in the November 2020 election. What can you tell us, I know it's preliminary, but what have you found so far?
1: So we found, for example, that instances of voter intimidation were higher than any recent election uh, that we have covered. There were people at polling sites across the South that were armed. We found many instances of changed polling sites where voters were confused about where they should go to cast ballots. Uh, We saw a decrease in the number of polling sites, uh, which as you might imagine, was deeply frustrating when you had such a high level of turnout and a demand for access to the ballot. Um, And we also learned that there was an enormous amount of disinformation uh, distributed among the African-American community through, for example, robocalls in Michigan telling voters that they should sit out the election on election day and instead vote the following day because there was too much congestion at the polls or letters sent to voters in Michigan and other states suggesting that uh, local officials would know who they voted for. And if they did not vote the right way, they would suffer certain consequences. So this election was more reminiscent of an election pre-1965 than any other that we've witnessed since then.
0: I mean, how is your group able to have this huge sweep of knowledge about what happened in the elections were you having almost in the way a news organisation would would you were you having reporters in these polling places taking notes and working out how long people had to line up and whether their ballots were being accepted and if that was you know happening to uh, uh, voters of colour more than it was happening to other voters how are you doing it
1: That's an excellent question. So we began an election protection effort uh, following the 2000 presidential election uh, uh, where there was, as we all know, a very uh, infamous lawsuit, Bush v. Gore, that handed the presidency to someone who did not win the popular vote. The last 19 days have been extraordinary ones. As our nation watched, we were all reminded on a daily basis of the importance of each and every vote. Since then, we recognize that uh, non-governmental organizations like ours, uh, you know, could play an essential role in monitoring elections on a broad scale. So we joined with other civil rights groups to monitor elections by having people on the ground on election day and by establishing a hotline uh, where people can call and report what they're seeing on the ground and give us firsthand accounts along with documentation and now with the uh, advent of cell phones, photographs, and other documentary evidence of what they're witnessing as uh, voters seeking to participate in the election. so there are a number of different information sources that we rely on to assess uh, what the burdens are for black voters in any given election cycle.
0: We've been talking so far about the past, even the very recent past, but let's talk, bring it more up to date with the effort that's going on in the, at the state level in various Republican held states, introducing new measures which would suppress the vote further. In other words, restrictions that weren't in place in November, but that if the state houses in some of these states get their way, they will be. Tell us about some of those that are now crossing your radar and that your uh, group is worried about. In Georgia, Republicans are reversing past support for no excuse absentee voting, trying to stop automatic voter registration while banning ballot drop off boxes. In Pennsylvania, Republicans are trying to roll back mail-in voting expansions they passed just two years ago. In New Hampshire, they're trying to require voter ID for absentee ballots while banning the use of student IDs.
1: Well, we're seeing a deeply alarming wave of voter suppression laws across the country. There are presently over 253 bills that aimed to restrict voting uh, in in various states, not just in the South, but primarily concentrated in the South, where we saw a significant rise in African-American voter turnout. These bills uh, are particularly aimed at mail-in voting in many instances, and we have since seen Bills in states like Georgia, Iowa, uh, uh, you know, many other states, Mississippi, Alabama, attempting to restrict voting access in this way. Uh, What we see in Georgia is perhaps the most egregious example. Not only did the House and Senate pass uh, legislation that would require uh, a, a more stringent ID in order to vote by mail and to limit the drop box, uh, the the actual physical access to to drop your ballot off uh, for purposes of mail-in voting. But there was a direct attempt to Uh, Limit early voting, which is something that African-Americans avail themselves of due to, you know, constraints in their work schedules. Uh, This comes on the heels of historic voter turnout, not only in the general elections, but in runoff elections that occurred in January of this year for two open seats in our Senate, in in our federal Senate. Uh, And so we see this as a very transparent attack on black voters. We see this uh, as a very transparent attack on our democracy. And we intend to fight it uh, not only in Georgia, but across the country. This wave of voter suppression will be met with a full uh, force of constitutional protection that civil rights and other advocates will bring to bear in our courts and in our legislatures.
0: So this is Republicans, really, seeing that, oh, my, oh, my, too many black people are voting. We're going to start losing elections like we did in Georgia. And we cover those two special elections here on this podcast and thinking, right, we're going to have to just make it harder. Those people who are proposing these measures, I'm sure they don't say that's the reason. And therefore, what do they say is the justification for making voting harder?
1: Well, interestingly, some of them say it and some of them don't. So the Legal Defense Fund is a nonpartisan organization, meaning that we do not have any stake in politics. We do not support parties or candidates. We are fully nonpartisan. Uh, but I'd be remiss if I did not recognize that former President Trump said uh, quite clearly in May of 2020, uh, they had things, uh, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. They had things in there. If we make it easier to vote, Republicans will never win another election. Uh, th- there's a fear that greater democracy harms the Republican Party. And instead of addressing that gap in support or that gap in appeal, the instinct is to limit voting access and to harm the integrity of our democracy. And that is something we will not countenance, certainly not at the expense of black voters. Of course, many legislators are not saying that it is because of uh, racial discrimination that they're enacting these bills. The fact of the matter is there are Americans across the state that have some concerns about what happened in this last uh, election. They are saying that it's necessary to protect the security of our elections, that it's necessary to prevent voter fraud, for example. Uh, But as we've seen, uh, over the course of the past decade, this myth of voter fraud is just that. It is the bills and legislation that we've seen come out to address that are solutions in search of a problem. It is it is an attempt to uh, use a sledgehammer to kill a fly. And that is a pretext for racial discrimination in many instances. And I think the efforts in Georgia are an excellent example of that.
0: Let's talk about the response from the other side again, you know, without get, becoming partisan about it. But Democrats are driving through a bill. It's passed, I think, in uh, the House. I think it's known as H.R. 1. People refer to it as uh, the John Lewis Act, because John Lewis, the great uh, legendary civil rights uh, activist who was elected to Congress and died. Uh, last year if that became law and we're going to get on to what are its chances in a moment but before we get there if that did become law would that deal at a stroke with all these this panoply of measures taken to suppress the vote those 250 odd bills would they in effect be rendered null and void would they be blunted if the john lewis act becomes law
1: So that's an interesting question. There are two critical pieces of legislation that our Congress uh, will hopefully take up and pass. And those are H.R. 1, House uh, Rule number 1, and H.R. 4. So H.R. 1 is dubbed the For the People Act, and H.R. 4 is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act.
0: Right, I was conflating the two. Yeah.
1: That's right. And 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 it's perfectly fair because the two really need to work in tandem to do the full work that's necessary to bring American democracy into compliance with the Constitution, to undo this effort of voter suppression, uh, and to restore the efficacy of the Voting Rights Act. So, HR 1, the For the People Act, is aimed primarily at expanding access to the ballot. Uh, it's aimed at reining in partisan influence in our redistricting process and also bringing greater integrity and transparency to campaign finance. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act is specifically aimed at restoring a provision of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court held unconstitutional in 2013. —
0: What this means is those states that are covered, they're mostly in the South, uh, right now are not going to have to get this pre-approval before they make changes in their voting requirements. The court has said that Congress has to come back and take another look at this law. They're invalidating ——
1: And that provision required states to pass any new voting law through the federal government to ensure that it did not have a racially discriminatory impact. And there were only certain states that had to do that. And that was based on their history of discrimination. Unfortunately, Chief Justice Roberts and the majority of the court in 2013 determined that this is too much of an old-fashioned formula. We don't have enough modern evidence that these states should be required to submit uh, to the federal government in this way. And therefore, we are suspending the enforcement of that part of the Voting Rights Act. So fast forward to uh, to now, we are hopefully going to finally bring that part of the Voting Rights Act back, back into active duty, if you will. But it is H.R. 1, the For the People Act, that we believe will really do a lot to counter some of the direct assaults on access to the ballot. So the For the People Act includes many democracy-expanding measures, including automatic voter registration, uh, which would allow eligible Americans to be automatically registered by states for federal elections. It includes a mandatory minimum of 15 days of early voting. So that makes it uniform across the country. It doesn't allow for counties or locales to tinker with access to early voting. It makes that a uniform standard for federal elections across the country. It restores voting rights to persons who were formerly incarcerated. These are pieces of federal legislation. So they only regulate federal elections, so congressional elections and presidential elections. But the hope is that they will have a trickle-down effect Uh, For state elections, it is quite unlikely that any state could maintain two different election systems, one for federal elections, one for state and local elections. So the new new provisions that we hope will come to pass and be implemented in federal elections will have an effect of enhancing uh, access for all elections throughout the country.
0: Let's talk about the politics of this for a bit. I know slightly beyond, um, you know, the, the, the scope of the LDF. But, do, do, you know, we've been talking on the premise that this gets passed. So will it? It's a razor-thin margin in the Senate 50-50 with a tie-breaking vote for Vice President Kamala Harris. Does it have the vote? Because we know there are some of those Democrats who come from red states, Trump's voting states. Do they vote for this to happen, do you think?
1: So, so that is that is the critical question, and uh, what gives me hope that it is uh, a very passable piece of legislation is when you look at public polling. Uh, if you look at public polling, two over two thirds of Americans support the For the People Act. Sixty eight percent of voters support the For the People Act, including fifty seven percent of Republicans. And if elected officials are truly uh, echoing the sentiments and the interests of their constituents, then there's no reason that the For the People Act should not pass. I'm very hopeful that uh, many Americans who want to make voting easier, uh, who have experienced the benefits of mail-in voting across racial lines, um, who have experienced... Uh, the importance of, of of this past election will support the ease of voting and the uh, ease of the burdens and restrictions on voting that the For the People Act presents.
0: Now, Janae Nelson, every time we have a guest on this podcast, we do like to put to them a what else question, something else going on in the news. And this one actually does relate to what's happened in Georgia, which I know we've talked about, but Kelly Leffler, who was one of the two Republicans who lost her Senate seat in those runoffs we talked about in back in January, she has created and launched a new group called Greater Georgia, which a lot of people are thinking of as a kind of Republican mirror image of what Stacey Abrams did among Democrats organizing at grassroots level. What do you make of that?
1: Well, I'm not a political pundit. I'm a civil rights advocate. Um, But what I am seeing is a real splintering on the side of conservatives. And instead of recognizing that Uh, the extremism is an affront to the decency of American democracy, is an affront to our ideals, uh, and leads to the violence that we saw uh, horrifically displayed on January 6th at our nation's Capitol, many are uh, not taking that cue and doubling down on the divisive rhetoric and these fringe parties and fringe groups. These efforts are, in my mind, tone deaf and uh, are are deeply concerning, of course, uh, but really miss the mark in terms of where this country is headed. And it is not down that spiraling path of uh, division and dysfunction, but one that is far more inclusive, one that embraces the diversity that is the greatest strength of this country, and one that we will fight you know, tooth and nail to keep.
0: Janae Nelson, Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defence Fund. Thanks so much for talking to us on Politics Weekly Extra. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. And that is all from me for this week. Next week, I'm going to take some time off. That's what happens when you build up a whole lot of holiday, because last year, election year, you couldn't turn your back for even a moment. But do not worry, my wonderful colleague, Jessica Glenzer will be stepping in and she'll be speaking to Dr. Abdul el said the former Democratic candidate for governor of Michigan. He's co-written a book about one of America's most fiercely contested policy subjects, Medicare for All. So do tune in next week for that. For now, I say goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please do continue to stay safe and thanks, as always, for listening.
1: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com podcasts.